This is a Founding Media podcast produced at Austin Community College District. Welcome to season two of Science in the Mall, y'all, where we talk about the exciting science happening in Austin Community College's Bioscience Incubator and the greater bioscience community in Austin. I'm your co-host, Dan Dillard. And in this episode, Nancy and I are throwing it back to season one by inviting former ABI intern, Marcia McCallum, back on the show. But to give it a fresh season two twist, we've got Mauricio Telez joining Marcia in conversation about all the fun stuff they've been up to since leaving ACC in the bioscience incubator and starting their own careers in the bioscience industry. Marcia and Mauricio's internships overlapped at ABI, so we'll jump right into the middle of their reunion, where they start talking about the awesome science that Marcia does every day as senior lead in upstream processing at X Biotech. Let's get right into it. Where are you working nowadays, Marcia? Um, I'm at X Biotech. I'm actually, yeah, I'm the senior lead in upstream manufacturing. Oh, <laughs> okay. I love that. But it's just been, it has been a really, really hectic two weeks. And we've got, we still have two more cell banks going on with new molecules to get them into uh, production. But I actually um, do a lot of the, with Dave's help, do a lot of the upstream uh, PD work to get them into manufacturing. What does that mean, so, a cell bank? Um, it means that um, R&D has cloned uh, some cells and then I take them and then I scale them up and then I will literally produce enough just enough um, culture, and then I'll spin them down. I usually make about a thousand vials frozen, and so that's the master. And then I take one of those masters, scale it up, and spin it down and make another thousand. And those are our production runs. So whenever we start a production, I thaw out one of those vials. Gotcha. Um, so it's like to, your freezer stocks or whatever, right? Yeah, it goes into gotcha. a negative eighty and then into uh, liquid nitrogen. I think um, I pulled some of your cells out of liquid nitrogen the other day. We have a new Aww. hourly that I'm getting culturing cells. And she was like, what do you got? And I was like, I don't know. Look at Marcia's stash. Did they come back? Did they revive well? Yeah, they're not they're not thriving, but yeah, they're, they're, they're no. alive. They're doing all right. Very relatable. Yeah, <laughs> it's mostly relatable. the fact that all of the stuff we bought to culture cells is two years old, right? Like all of our media is probably expired and all of yeah. our FBS, not FBS probably fine, mm-hmm. but. Well, and then that's what, when I'm doing PD work too, they'll be like, well, the dextrose is expired by about two months. And I'm like, it's sugar water. I think that's- <laughs> um, exactly. Some of the other, uh, um, other stuff we use because when, when we do our GMP stuff, I mean, it is too, you know, it is on paper. It is, we, everything is logged down. Everything is written. But when we're doing some of the PD stuff, it's kind of like, let's see what happens. But a lot of the, the, the best records, uh, the master production records, um, were written by, I wrote some of them, and they're written by the team so that we can, as we go through the PD work, we'll be like, oh, this worked really good. Let's make sure we get it in there for, so that the next people coming up will actually do what we did. So it's basically or, taking and figuring out how to grow this particular cell line and making note of it and sort of tweaking the growth conditions uh-huh. and the media conditions and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Media conditions, CO2 levels, O2 levels, um, whether we want to keep them at four grams per liter or six grams per liter of sugar in there for them to eat, um, all sorts of different variables we work with. 
I, I still name, I name my large reactors. I don't name, I don't name my 2050 reactors because they are only there for four days. I can't get that attached to them. So if they're short-lived, they, it's not even worthy of a name. I yeah, but our, our, our 500 liter production reactors, we could have up two and a half weeks, have them in there. So they have names and, you know, I wake them up when it's school day and all that good stuff. <laughs> I love it. It's kind of funny because when they, you know, when you guys worked there, you didn't know all this stuff and you didn't talk about it so confidently. And now to touch base three years later and hear you like explaining your expertise to each other is kind of cool. We are the SMEs <laughs> here. So, you know. <laughs> I think, uh, Marsha, what, of what you were talking to us earlier about, I just was kind of very in awe of the fact that you're able to have like your feet in both turfs like both of like research and development kind of like developing assays optimizing them um and also like just like streamlined like mass production like go everything airtight having those two worlds like in your uh single job is really amazing to me and it's it's a fine line to walk i have to admit because when you're when we're doing our mass you know our gmp production such it it is by the book We've written the batch record. They're reviewed by QA. You make the slightest little deviation. It has to be planned and paperwork. This much has to be written if you want to go away from it. But when we're doing PD on these new molecules coming up, we do get a lot of, well, let's see if this, let's change this variable. Let's change this condition. And I, and I enjoy both sides because I get to bring it up in the manufacturing or to manufacturing. And then eventually I get to see it go to, you know, clinicals and then into the marketplace. So for clarification, PD is product development. Product yeah? development. Right. Yeah, product As opposed to the product manufacturing, which, is, yeah, that's, yes. that's totally yeah. cool. I hadn't even noticed that, Mauricio, but yeah. The fact that she's straddling both of those is really cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, on my field, it's usually one or the other. Uh, you usually aren't able to do both at the same time, unless you're like building a department from the ground up and you're developing the assays and then stay long enough with the company or like the hospital to actually like see them enacted, you know? Yeah. Well, um, it's like the ones that we have in manufacturing right now, I started with a year ago. Wow. And so I'm working with like two molecules right now that are still in PD while I'm still working with two molecules that are in wow. production. So I'm actually working on four different projects and a co- and I still have my fingers in other ones, but I'm working on four different projects that are two in PD and two are in manufacturing. So is yeah. that typical? Then, like there are a lot of people at Xbiotech that kind of straddle those lines or is, is this there's, a it's usually the senior, it's the senior leads of each department. The menu, the managers are, are, um, um, pretty well depth in, in all, the whole phase of their department. Um, and it's usually the senior leads in there that are going to handle the product development um, into and then getting it ready for manufacturing with the guidance from our managers. So it's not not everybody that's in upstream does the direct line PD. They may um, start with the projects or Dave and I get them set up. I get the timelines, get everything ready. And then um, a junior colleague will take it to actually perform what we've got set up and variables. And then the data is brought back and then we decide what to do. With I'm curious there. about um, nice. at what point do you know that the molecule is ready to go from PD to production? So wait a minute, I'm going to make you add details just because we know what you're talking about, but I not don't. everybody does. So oh, cultures gotcha. of um, mammalian cells. 
Yes, yes. Um, but we take uh, the cultures are mammalian. They're Cho cells, um, Chinese hamster, hamster ovary cells um, that have been programmed to produce a certain antibody. So when we are doing our PD work, we're trying to make that molecule produce X antibody, whatever antibody it's programmed to produce at its highest yield. So we um, sample it every day for um, culture analysis. And then, but we also out of that sample, see what the titers are. What's the uh, concentration of that antibody? Um, once we get it to a production, a high production level of antibody in the culture, then we know it's ready to go to large scale. So this drug, I mean, this, the drug that you're making is an antibody. So it could be anything, like you could be making these cells make any kind of molecule. It just happens to be that you guys are working on antibody. What we reproduce are actually true, true human antibodies. It's an antibody found in another human being oh, wow. um, to, to a disease or to a, 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 what's the right word I'm thinking of, uh, to a symptom, to something that somebody has a natural immunity mm-hmm. to combat it. And we reproduce that antibody so that other people can take it. There's less uh, risk rejection, rejection yeah. because it's something that is naturally in mm-hmm. that in your body. Yeah, I mean, think about that in the context of these COVID conversations. If everybody's saying, "Oh, you know, I know how my immune system works," it's like unless you've encountered that virus or whatever, your body can't make those antibodies. And so if you get the guy that already got it a year ago, and you can take his antibodies and stick it in somebody yeah. else, then that works. Or resistant to begin with. Yeah, but that's what we, we produce true, true human antibodies. So they're, they're, they're directly, uh, genetically, directly engineered from something that's already found in the body. So. Did you know that already Mauricio about their company? No, I had a vague, I mean, uh, it's been a few years since I remembered that, uh, both, uh, Marsha and Mike ended up at Expiotech. Um, and yeah, it's kind of an interesting journey and kind of like full circle moments here and there, because I remember at the beginning of like starting getting in like the actual lab, my first job being at the incubator, right? Marsha and Mike both being like my first exposure to like true lab scientists, mm-hmm. you know, in their own <laughs> right. Um, and then getting exposed to like the uh, world of antibodies which, I mean, for someone that hasn't started their career in mm-hmm. science, um, just, you know, it's, it's very cool sounding. Um, it's very like, oh, okay, like you kind of get yeah. the gist of it. Like we all make antibodies to different things. That's how I'm feeling right now. All this is cool. And I guess like you can make them in the lab. <laughs> yeah, right. But you don't realize how uh, ubiquitous they are in biosciences. Of course, like, and Marsha has, like, I think the coolest uh, involvement with antibodies, which is actually, like, engineering them, producing them, having a clinical application for it for patients and, like, people that need them. Like, all of that is, like, as involved as you can get Mm -hmm. with them. But in a lot of adjacent fields within biosciences, antibodies are still used by you. Most likely they're not. For the clinical side of things, a lot of immunoassays uh, for right. tests for different analytes uh, involve antibodies to be used as reagents, you know? So even if they're not like the thing that you're making or like the thing that you're researching per se, 
you more likely than not will be using them, at least in the tests that you do, depending on what branch of biosciences you end up in. You still have to make them, right? And I'm, you know, in, in all these assays, like, yeah, we used them for Western blots and ELISAs and all that stuff all along. And you still had to buy these antibodies from somebody that was making yeah. them, but they weren't making them to put them Someone into other humans. And so, like, yeah. I, I'm with you. This is my first foray into the so idea. So for a non-science like, oh, guy, that. you guys, were, so I understood what Marsha was saying, the antibodies from a human to, you know, to produce for someone else that's got that ailment. But you guys are talking about testing and you've made, you've mentioned a, a couple of different words. Could you explain yeah. to me or the audience what that means? Yeah, the yeah, yeah, blot and all that. Yeah. Just, yeah. So, well, first of all, can I, can I throw one thing in first? Yeah, and of as course. far as science and being in the PD side of let's see, who ever thought that somebody was sitting around going, how are we going to make this work? Let's throw some milk on it. That might make it work. <laughs> and that's basically, that's where science is, you know, that's where it's coming. That's where it came from is it was just like something to be like, well, I need it to be kind of uh, slightly acidic, but it needs to be smooth. It needs to have a little bit of protein in it, not too much milk. <laughs> so now that you've really lost them because they don't know how milk gets used in I know, I know. Well, I'd say, I'd say that uh, the word of the topic is immunoassays. Um, they're so common in the field. Uh, they're so extremely useful. And there's so many different types and most of them, if not all of them, exploit antibodies as like the main thing to make mm -hmm. the magic happen. You know, uh, they are just really useful because you can, you know, an antibody is just a protein. It can target another protein. And, and it's very the specific possibilities to are that. pretty endless. Yeah. Exactly. So it specifically binds to a protein that mm -hmm. you're interested in. And what's useful about them is that not only can they bind to it, you can actually conjugate them to something else so that you can notice that they're there. Um, for example, if you have a protein and an antibody directed to it and you put like a fluorophore, like a molecule mm -hmm. that will fluoresce. Uh, if they bind, then it lights okay. up, right? Oh, nice. <laughs> exactly. Like so that's like a meats and potato type of like, yeah, kind of, you know, like a uh, way to know that like the protein you're looking that's for correct. is there thanks to the antibody yeah. binding to it and to whatever molecule you bond to the antibody mm -hmm. giving a signal, either a color signal, a fluorescent signal. Um, and then that rough premise applies to the most incomprehensibly large different <laughs> variations of immunoassays. And in and in the clinical side of things, in research, like there's just no replacing them, at least in the right. foreseeable future. Like if you wanted to know if your drug, you know, increases the amount of something else, like let's say mm -hmm. insulin, right? You know, like does your does insulin have an effect on this other of this pathway or whatever? And you wanted to see if there's more or less of this other thing. You can have an antibody against that thing that lights up and you see does there more light or less light when you compare it to no insulin. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you can quantitate it. Like there's imaging things to actually count how many fluorescent molecules or whatever it is you're using and say, oh, it's exactly 3.5 times as much. Got it. So at first I was like, is the goal to like produce antibodies uh, and just see what they can do? But I guess it's, a, it's much bigger than that. Much bigger. The Sanger sequencing, 
Um, is that with oh. proteins? Because it does have the, the floor forms on them. Um, but was that done also with antibody binding? Se- sequencing I, is DNA. So it's all a yeah, nucleotide. But so that was all just done off the nucleotides then. Yeah, I do believe that the nucleotides sometimes might be conjugated to another signaling molecule, but I, I'm yeah. not sure if Sanger sequencing specifically used antibodies. Yeah, that's um, it, it was just a thought in my head, and I was yeah. like, as soon as you said the chloroforms, I was just like... They're talking oh. DNA, not protein. Yeah. Just ignore all <laughs> So many questions now. Using that. <laughs> I love that your mind went to sequencing, though, because that's a behemoth of a topic on its own. Yeah. Uh, And I will say that we have a company at the incubator right now that is doing um, kind of the equivalent of Sanger sequencing, but for amino acids. And it is a fluorescence based uh, and they can go amino acid by amino acid so that they could sequence your tumor cell versus the cell next to it or versus somebody else with the same cancer or same kind of cancer and see the difference between yours and theirs. And they can do it at the oh, same that cell is level. Cool. But that's... Yeah, so that's many cool Those companies, companies that go through the incubator and, and then where people like end up like listening to Marsha and I'm just like, and we're all like just asking her questions. But then Mauricio, where you ended up also is like super cool. So I was really trying to Wow, it's amazing to learn about all the cool stuff happening right here in our backyard at X-Biotech and to get a glimpse into all the amazing work that former ABI interns and ACC students get to be a part of. Thank you, Marcia and Mauricio, for joining the podcast. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Science in the Mall, y'all. Tune into part two of this conversation to learn more details about science of what Mauricio is doing as a clinical laboratory scientist and to get both former interns and current scientists advice about how to create a successful career in the biosciences. This is a Foundy Media podcast produced in partnership with Austin Community College's Bioscience Incubator, which is the region's only wet lab space for Austin's growing bioscience industry.